If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, um, I'd love to look with you at John chapter 19 together as we're kind of rounding out our series uh, in the gospel of John, thinking about life with Jesus together uh, this year through the gospel of John. Um, And as you're turning there, I'll fill in a, a uh, a few of the gaps between what Dave talked about last week as we thought together last week about Jesus um, drinking the cup of wrath uh, for us and providing uh, life in place of the death that our sin deserves by doing that for us. What happens after that is that Jesus gets uh, arrested. He does get arrested. Um, He goes on trial. He has trial with the Roman government. He also has trial with the Jewish leaders uh, as well, too. And he's ultimately convicted uh, of the crime of insurrection. Uh, Jesus is then tortured, uh, and he receives a sentence of death. uh, Death by by the cross. So that's what we're going to read about this morning. I'm not going to pull any punches here. This is heavy stuff. Um, And there is a lot here. There's a lot that we won't be able to get, get at this morning as well, too. Uh, So if you if you want to talk more about this passage. Afterwards, I'm happy to do that. I'm just trying to kind of clear out some of the stuff on the front end um, for us here. But let's read this passage together. This is John chapter 19. We're going to take a look at the second half of verse 16 uh, and then through verse 30. Um, As I read this, Jesus did this for you and me. This is real. This really happened. This is true. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. Let's pray together. Ask God to help us understand his word this morning. 
Father, we come to you and we read these words and it crosses our minds just how saddening and painful it must have been for you to watch your only son die an excruciating death. And Jesus, we read these words and we see what you endured. And it's all part of this huge, grand, cosmic plan to bring us back to you. To purchase forgiveness for our sin. To provide life for us. And Holy Spirit, you are the one who works those things into our hearts to believe that Jesus has laid down his life for us. And that in him it is finished. And so we pray together this morning that you would help us to see that it is finished in Jesus, that he has done it, and we have life in him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, I was in college, and a, a, a movie came out called Ocean's Eleven. Anybody seen Ocean's Eleven? And then there's been subsequent ones of those, 12 and 13, and I think a few years ago there was an Ocean's Eight that was kind of like the ladies' version. Um, if you will, but in this movie, Ocean's Eleven, they, they gathered together this amazing cast of people to play in this movie, and it's actually built off of a movie that was done in the 1960s. And the idea behind um, Ocean's Eleven uh, is that there, there, there are these 11 guys that make a plan to rob a casino uh, in Las Vegas, and they're professional robbers, like that's what they do for a living. And, and we get to see them sort of hatch this plan together. And we get to see all of the, the, the details behind it uh, and everything. And uh, we get to see them make, make this plan of how they're going to rob this casino of millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, and one of my favorite parts in each of these movies, this happens in each of these movies, is right at the end. Because uh, at the end of the movie... We, the audience, get to, get to watch this whole thing unfold. And we get to sort of like peer behind the curtain of the plan that they have made. And we get to see all of these different people playing these parts and these roles that they don't even know what it is that they're actually uh, doing. But we, the audience, get to see the big reveal of how they pull off this massive uh, heist of what they are doing. Well, this morning, we have the opportunity to sort of peer behind the curtain. We have the opportunity to see the big picture behind what is going on in this one singular afternoon on a cross outside of the city with passers-by and, and many of them having no idea what it is that's going on. And certainly there's characters that are in our story that they don't even realize what it is that they are doing and so we're going to get to walk through some of that together this morning. And the way that we're going to do that, I've got two points for us, is taking a look at a story of fulfillment. And then we're going to think about, well, so what? So let's dive into this story. Let's look at this story of fulfillment. John tells us that after Jesus is tried and he is convicted of insurrection, he he is then tortured, and then we get to our passage here where Jesus is set on this path, uh, this path to, to the cross. John tells us that Jesus himself carries this cross, 
And what Jesus is doing in carrying this cross and going to the cross is he is, he is fulfilling, drinking the cup that Dave talked about last week that is set before him of the wrath that is due for our sin that we might find forgiveness in him. In the other Gospels, we see as Jesus carries this cross, he gets to the point he's so bloodied and beaten and, and everything that he can't, like, he can't physically carry it anymore. And so there's a man that steps in by the name of Simon, Simon of Cyrene. And Simon helps Jesus carry the cross for him. And the place where Jesus is going is to the place of a skull, also known as Golgotha. And think about that for a minute. You know, that the image that a skull kind of brings to mind is very sad and dark, death. And then Jesus is nailed in his hands and his feet. He's mounted uh, on the cross. He's probably got nails here in between these two wrist bones so that he can actually hang up on the cross. Because if it had been through the palms of his hands, it probably would have ripped. But Jesus is nailed up there. And we also see that there are two other people that are there with him, and Jesus is in the center. Matthew and Mark record a conversation for us that Jesus has with these two people that are being crucified with him. And one of them, he tells them that that very day, he will be in paradise with him. All of the the gospel writers go into great detail about this account. And some of them choose different details than others. John chooses different details than Matthew and Mark and Luke, and some are more specific about different things than others. But what I want us to recognize in all of this detail that we get here, what is being communicated to us is that this is an event that actually really happened. That this really did happen. That there was a guy who was a Roman governor named Pilate. That he really did sentence this man to death. And and John records the place of the skull for us because he's communicating to us like, you can go there. It's, It's near the city, but it's outside of the city. But you can actually go there. You can see the place where all of this really and truly happened. The details tell us that this is a historical event. And then John tells us about this inscription that Pilate gives Jesus, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders, they get angry about that because they're like, he ain't our king. He might have said that he is, but he's not really our king. And Pilate says, look, what I have written, I have written. And then John includes this other little detail for us that, that Pilate not only wrote king of the Jews, he wrote it three different times. He wrote it in Aramaic. He wrote it in Hebrew, and he wrote it in Greek. Aramaic would have been pretty much the trade language of the day. A language that every common person would have been able to read and understand. Greek was the language of the intellectuals and the philosophers. Hebrew was religious language. Pilate, writing this on here, he doesn't know the role and the part that he is playing, but he has actually recorded for us the first written inscription of the gospel. 
in three different languages so that everybody who walked by that cross would know exactly who that is. That that is the king of the Jews. And then John tells us that the soldiers that are there tending to the crosses, they divide Jesus' clothes into four separate parts. And then they take his tunic and it's one seamless piece and they decide that well, let's gamble over who's going to actually get the tunic so that uh, we can know who's going to actually be able to take these things away and get the most money out of our spoils here from this guy who is dying. And so Jesus is up there on that cross. He's totally exposed. He's totally naked. And then we turn to three Marys and to John. We have Mary, Jesus' mom, then her sister, Mary, and then Mary Magdalene. And then we have Jesus' close beloved friend, who is the writer of this very text that we look at today, the Apostle John. And it's interesting what we see in this, this very moment as Jesus is coming to the end of his life, what he does He cares for his mom in death. He looks at his mom and he says, behold your son. And he looks at John and he says, behold your mother. Take care of her. Take her into your home. Even in death, Jesus cares about his mama. And then Jesus, John tells us, knowing the full picture of everything that is going on, so that he would fulfill the scriptures, he says, I thirst. I'm thirsty. And then we see this sour wine on this hyssop branch that is given to Jesus. And then we see Jesus say, it's finished. And he breathes his last breath. You know, every time that I read this passage, whether it's in John or Matthew or Mark or Luke, I'm just struck by how sad it is and how excruciating uh, it is as well too. I mean, I'm struck by the sadness of here's this man who's an innocent man. He's been convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. He's been tortured. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been sentenced to death. It's upsetting. It should be. It should be upsetting. But I'm also struck every time that I read this as well too at the details that each one of these writers includes that keys us in to the reality that there's something bigger than just a wrongful conviction going on here. There's something bigger going on and John tells us that what that bigger is is fulfillment. It's fulfillment. This is a story of fulfillment, and that fulfillment is cosmic. And it's absolutely rooted in history, and it comes into our present and carries us all the way into the future. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is it that Jesus is fulfilling here? And in order to understand what Jesus is fulfilling, we have to step back to the beginning of time as we know it. We have to step back to the creation of all things, all the way back to Genesis 1, where God spoke everything into existence, and he created man and woman and called them Adam and Eve. 
And he created man and woman in his very own image. To be in relationship with him and to be in relationship with each other and called them to live out that relationship in faithful obedience to the one who made them. That they were to be God's representatives in all of creation to steward over everything that God had made. And we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve did not live out their relationship with God faithfully. They disobeyed. They rebelled. They were bent on lives revolving around self. And what that did is it brought death and destruction and sin and chaos into everything that God had made. And yet, what we see God do in light of that is He comes down to them and He pursues them in His grace and His mercy. And He promises to them that He will provide life for them in the midst of their sin. And so He does. And then He gives us an even bigger promise. Because He tells us that there's going to be a seed who is going to come through Eve who will deal the ultimate blow to sin and rebellion and destruction and rid God's creation of death and destruction. You see, in this moment where we read here in John chapter 19, Jesus hanging on this cross, Jesus is actually the seed who is fulfilling that final blow that God promised all the way back in the garden. Jesus is that promise. And what John and the other gospel writers want us to see as well too is that Psalm 22 shows us exactly what that final blow will look like. You see there are several different portions in our passage that are quoted from scripture. And we see some of these also in the other gospels as well too. And they are quotes directly from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a psalm that is written by King David. And David writes this psalm, and what we see in there is a public spectacle. A public spectacle of a king being crucified, being killed. Now we have to recognize that David himself was never crucified. And so David is writing this psalm about a king who would come beyond him and into the future, and that this king would be crucified, he would be mocked, and he would be beaten He would feel forsaken by God. In the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, Jesus quotes the very first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David writes in Psalm 22 that this king's garments, they get torn. And they get divided. And that thirst consumes the king. You see, John 19 is showing us that Psalm 22 is ultimately about Jesus, who is the seed who is promised in Genesis 3. And that seed who is promised in Genesis 3 is a king. He's a king who is crucified, and that king is Jesus, king of the Jews, king of the universe, in order for the promise and the fulfillment to come the king must be crucified. And that's the story of fulfillment that we have in front of us. And maybe you're out there saying, well, great. I mean, geez, you're being a Debbie Downer up here. Um, 
Or maybe you're out there saying, well, that's kind of some interesting history and some connections that are made there, but so what? What does this mean for me? What does it mean for you? Well, here's the so what. You see, death and destruction through rebellion is everywhere. We see it all over the place. In 2013, I remember uh, watching the BBC news broadcast where I found out that there was a little village in northern Syria where there had been thousands of people who had had chemical warfare unleashed on them. Men, women, young, old, infants. And then as the news slowly rolled out, we found out that it was actually their own government that did it to them. Their government that was supposed to care for them, for their welfare, unleashed chemicals on these people and attacked them. Rendering many of them dead, rendering many of them absolutely affected for the rest of their lives. That's 2013. In 1994, news broke out that in the country of Rwanda and Africa, that there was civil war that was happening. And it was between two particular groups of people. And one group had so decided that they hated the other that they were going to vanquish them from the planet. And genocide ensued. And in a three-month period, between 500,000 and 1 million people were killed just because they were different. If we think back to our own history as a country, the United States of America, we have to continue to come to grips with the reality that our entire country was built on buying and selling people as if they were a good built on not seeing human beings as those who bear God's image in his world. Beloved, death and destruction, rebellion, the effects of it, are everywhere. It explains very well the world that we live in and we inhabit. We see the effects of rebellion all around. And God's word tells us that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And we can sit here and it is easy to agree with that. It's not hard to agree with that. All of us feel deep down that evil does not belong here. That it should have no place. All of us long for wrong to be made right. We become and we should be outraged at atrocities. And yet they keep coming, don't they? They walk up into stores in El Paso and start laying out fire on people. They keep coming and we keep thinking to ourselves, well, we can fix this. We can do things that will fix this. And there's this sense amongst all of us that there are things that are left that are unfinished. And the more we try to fix it, the more we convince ourselves and realize that it is impossible for humanity to fix humanity. To try to fix humanity with humanity is actually a hopeless endeavor, beloved. 
You see, because the problem is, is at the root of all of the evil atrocities, what's really going on is that there are other human beings who are carrying out those atrocities. And we're forced to have to deal with the reality that that same evil, that same seed of evil is in our very own hearts. That it's not just the giant humanity-sized evil that shows us rebellion, but that it actually reaches down into each of our own hearts. You see, because the heart behind each human atrocity in history is the same that drove Adam and Eve to rebel in the first place. And that heart is a heart that desires to serve self, to protect self, to promote self. And whether that works its way out in trying to maintain political power or wipe out the opposition or take advantage of desperate and marginalized situations and people for our very own gain. All of that is born from individual hearts that want to serve and protect self above everything else. Hearts that think that we are somehow better than other people. Hearts that think that we somehow deserve better and deserve more than others. No one is exempt from this condition, beloved. The Apostle Paul tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. No one is exempt from the sin condition. We all have it. We all stand on the shoulders of Adam and Eve. We all demand life on our own terms. Let me bring this like right down to gut level. Because if I slow down, I demand life on my own terms daily. Daily. People get in my way on the road. How dare they? Where I'm going has got to be more important than where they're going. This text that I just received while I'm driving is more important than the person's life in the car beside me. I can't be bothered to care for family pets. What I've got to do with my time is far more important than dealing with some dogs. When I get home and my kids are just excited to see me, how often my mind goes to, don't they know how hard my day has been? When I get home and I see Carrie and she starts telling me about how hard her day is, I immediately run to, it's not possible for her day to be as difficult as mine was. And I find myself just waiting for her to finish so that I can have my turn to one-up her day and her stories. I think that I have cornered the market on moral superiority over my kids. How often do I think that my heart is actually better than my children's? That I actually have a more pure heart than they do. And so I just ascribe all kinds of motive to them. No problem. That's just scratching the surface. We could be here for two hours if you wanted to. 
The atrocities of humanity exist in our very own hearts that are bent on serving self, that are bent on life on my own terms. So what does Jesus' fulfillment on the cross have to do with us? Everything. Everything, beloved. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3. Where God says that he is going to send someone who's going to crush sin and defeat rebellion. And he can be that because he never sinned. He never rebelled. He always lived faithfully. Jesus fulfills Psalm 22 as well too. The seed of Genesis 3 is the king who is crucified. He fulfills the heart of what we see in Psalm 22. Not just these random verses. He's publicly executed. And Psalm 22 tells us that that public execution, it has to happen for sin to be vanquished. And David goes on to tell us that when the king is crucified, what he does is he provides a way for righteousness to exist. For the wrong to be made right. And he tells us that this king, what he's going to do is he's going to turn the hearts of the nations to God. We receive that. We are broken and messed up. And we need God to fix us. We cannot fix ourselves. We have to have Jesus come and change our rebellious hearts. And that is exactly what he does when he goes to the cross. Jesus becomes our sin for us. Jesus is forsaken so that we would belong. So that we could have forgiveness and restoration with God and with each other. And then John leaves us with the ultimate big reveal. The ultimate fulfillment. Jesus' last words and the last words of Psalm 22 echo each other. Just as Jesus is about to breathe out his last, he says, it is finished. David's last words in Psalm 22 are, he has done it. The language in John 19 that's used here is not passive. It's active language. That this is something that Jesus has pursued. It's not just something that has happened to him, but that he willingly went to finish the work that he came to do. My translation of it is finished is it is completely completed. It's a perfected tense that applies to the past and the present and ongoing into the future. Jesus has done it. The promise is fulfilled. Righteousness has been brought through his sinless life and his willing death on a cross to become our sin for us. Exchanging his perfection for our bent, rebellious, twisted, and broken hearts. All of our longings that we have for wrong to be made right, for the unfinished to be finished, Jesus finishes them. They are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus as he brings us into his family and makes another promise to us that he is going to come back and he is going to wipe the tears from our eyes and all of the injustices 
throughout all of humanity and all of history will be made right in Him, beloved. Do you want that? Do you want that this morning? Do you have that? We all need it. We all need to receive our crucified Savior King this morning. Who has completely completed it. Who has finished it. He has done it for you and for me. And we get to celebrate that together as we come to the table this morning too. Where God gives us a picture of what Jesus has done here on the cross. A picture that we can take and we can hold on to and we can take in and ingest and see Jesus' body that was broken for you and for me. And Jesus' blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins that we might have life. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we partake of this meal, what we are doing is we are proclaiming the cross until Jesus comes again and fulfills the promise of ridding all of his creation of the death and destruction that our sin has brought in. As we take this meal together, we are receiving a picture of God's grace. That Jesus has gone to the cross for our sin. That in him, it really is finished. He has done it. And we're also receiving God's promises to us as well too. That in Jesus finishing everything on the cross, he is promising that he will never leave us. That he will be with us. And he will Grow us in his grace. Be encouraged by that. All of the places where the seeds of evil are in your heart, Jesus is rooting that out and bringing life to where death is because his grace is bigger than our sin. This table belongs to the Lord Jesus. So if you are here this morning and you belong to the Lord Jesus, and you have joined yourself to his church, then this table is for you. It is not the table of Christ Presbyterian Church. It's not even the table of our denomination. It is the table of the Lord Jesus. So if you belong to him, come and take of this meal that he has provided for you and for me. But if you're here this morning, you're not sure what to think about Jesus, You wouldn't necessarily say that you belong to him, that his death on the cross paid for your sins. Then we wouldn't want you to partake of something that's not true of what you believe. And so we would ask you to let these elements pass you by. There's nothing magic going on up here. This will not save you. But instead of receiving these elements, we would would beg you, receive the Lord Jesus this morning. Receive life in him. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this meal that you have set before us. 
that we can come and we can taste and we can see and we can take in and ingest your grace to us. That we can take the bread and the cup and we can take it in and know it is finished. Would you encourage our hearts this morning that we belong to Jesus, that everything is really and truly finished in him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.